the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thank all of you for the kind words, the kind gifts, the words and even uh, gifts and gift cards and uh, different things. Even last night, uh, a dear couple who's been a part of our church for many years took my wife and I out to dinner for pastor's appreciation. And uh, we're just so humbled. We're, we're so thankful for uh, just the, the show of love and, and, and support that all of you have given us. It is definitely an honor uh, to be your pastor and your elder and your shepherd. Um, I actually, uh, at a certain point uh, this week, I was about to sit down and start writing uh, thank you notes to those of us who gave, gave us those gifts. And, and I thought, but they kind of they gave those gifts saying they were a thank you gift. Do you write a thank you note for a thank you gift? Does that just start this endless cycle of thank you notes back and forth? So uh, I hope this is enough, my public uh, show of appreciation uh, and gratitude for that. Well, we find ourselves this morning uh, continuing in 1 Peter chapter 5 in verses 1 through 4, having looked at about a third of this passage. Would you turn there with me? We looked at about a third of it last week, and we'll finish it off this morning. 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 4. After talking about so much regarding the perseverance of the saints in the midst of a very real persecution, very real difficulties that this original audience, this ancient church in Asia was facing, uh, being killed, being murdered, being beaten, being raped, all kinds of things these Christians were. He writes this, therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker rather also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And I just want to remind you of how I started the message last week, because Often we can read a passage like this uh, and we can do one of two things. We can kind of shut off our minds and say, this is for pastors, this is for elders. I am not an elder. I do not desire to be an elder and I don't think I'll ever be an elder. And so you just kind of think, well, this is not for me. And the other uh, extreme, if you will, I think is more uh, in regards to the people who would preach this passage, such as myself, is there is a temptation to spiritualize this and say, well, see, well, we all kind of shepherd people. Even though you're not an elder, you still need to shepherd in this way. Although that is true, that's me putting something in the text. This is a passage for pastors and elders, and that's how I'm preaching it. But I want to remind you of the three ways that you, as a layperson, perhaps with no desire to be an elder, no even physical ability to be an elder, if you know what I mean, uh, There's three ways you can approach this and learn from this passage. First, if you uh, are not a part of this church and you're looking for a church or you're visiting, this is what you should look for for a true biblical church. Uh, The structure of church government is very clear in the New Testament. And so if you want to find a biblical church, uh, you need to find one that not only preaches God's word but lives it out and practices it with uh, uh, elders, uh, not just people who are called elders, but who are living out, are, are spiritually qualified, as First Timothy 3 says, and Titus 2, but also, or Titus 1 rather, but also uh, they're, they're practicing and have the right heart attitude. Number two, you should expect and demand this of me and your elders in this church. And I said it last week, and I meant it, uh, and I'll say it again. The minute that I am not qualified spiritually, the minute that I am not pursuing uh, the role, my role of shepherding in a way that is in accordance with God's word, you must, you must get rid of me and find someone who will do it right. In other words, do it biblically. 
And thirdly, this is how you could be praying for your pastors and and elders, whether it's at this church or another, uh, through uh, these. um, Because what we find in 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 4, um, it's not so much the spiritual qualifications, but a hard attitude in how pastors are to shepherd, how elders are to shepherd. Well, let's jump into these. We've been looking at four qualities of a biblical elder. Uh, you could say if you're seeking a, a good church, four tests of what a biblical elder looks like. Last week, we began by looking at verse 1, and we saw the description the description of a biblical elder, and I unpacked for you, uh, even uh, going outside of First Peter 5, the different Greek words that are translated for this role uh, in the church. We defined what an elder is and looked like and the spiritual qualifications uh, from First Timothy 3 and summarized it as this, a spiritually qualified individual who is designated for a specific office within the church. And we know from 1 Timothy 3 that it's not people who just seek a title or an office or uh, like a physical office in the church or whatever. It is a fine work, Paul tells Timothy, that this man desires to do. And so it is not about who he is uh, in the eyes of the church or in the bylaws or whatever it may be. It is the work of shepherding. Secondly, we saw the duty. The duty in the first part of verse 2. Uh, Shepherd the flock of God among you, Peter writes, exercising oversight. And so we see quite frankly or quite clearly that the purpose and role of the elder is to use the word of God, uh, not his opinions, not not pop psychology or how society is going, but the word of God to take care of the congregation as a whole, but also to look out for the well-being of every member of of that church, whether it's their first time, whether they're a member, whether they have been coming for years or whether they've been coming just for a few weeks. That pastor, those elders on that Sunday, and it goes far beyond Sunday, to go into the lives of those people and make sure that they are doing well. Now, of course, this is impossible. There's only so much information we can gather. There's only so much information that will be shared. But as a pastor, as a shepherd, as an elder, there is a day where I will be, I will give an account to my chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, of how I shepherded you. And I don't know what that will look like. Maybe something like, you knew this person was in sin. Why didn't you say something? You knew this was happening. Why didn't you deal with this? Why didn't you do that? And I do want to take a second and go back. I said that um, elders are not to shepherd with opinions and and with the way things are going in society and and cultural norms. There is, of course, a place for that. And I say that very carefully, and I want you to hear this very carefully. But the foundation must be the Word of God. And what I say when there is a place for cultural norms uh, and opinions is I can't just quote a verse And that all of a sudden tells you, should you marry this guy or not, right? There is a lot of gray area. The Bible doesn't say, yes, you should go to UC Davis. Yes, you should get a master's degree. We don't know. We can apply biblical principles, and then I can shepherd you based on some of the subjective gray areas that come out of it, but always based on the scriptures, So what I am warning you against is someone who either preaches or counsels or just gives casual advice that is never connected to Scripture. In fact, is not even uh, majority Scripture based upon Scripture, but it's clearly just their opinion, uh, their personal experience because their daughter happened to do this, and so now they think this is going to happen to everyone in the church or different things like that. It must be based on the scriptures, because scripture is what is going to like that, uh, you know, like a, uh, a steamroller that's going to get all the little bumps and, and grooves out of that fresh paved road, right? The scripture is going to iron out my wrong opinions, my, my wrong views, the, the, what the culture or psychologists are saying as it is going to do for you. Well, that's all review. Let's go to uh, our third quality of a biblical elder. This is our first point for this morning, but our third uh, in our overall outline, and that is the discipline, the discipline of a biblical elder or how he is to shepherd. 
And we find this in the end of verse 2 and all of verse 3. Let me read this beginning of verse 2 for you again for context. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, and here's the discipline, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, verse 3, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And so we have a couple uh, comparisons here. Don't do this, but do this. And these are guidelines that Peter lays out for the elder in regards to how he is to shepherd. First, he says, the elder is to shepherd willingly. He says, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, or as some of your English versions say, willingly. To do something under compulsion means in the Greek to be forced to be constrained to do whatever it is, the action at hand. In our case, it is shepherding, pastoring. On the contrary, he says, elders are to do so with a willing heart, voluntarily. They want to do this. Now, although elders don't choose themselves, right? They don't say, I'm an elder. They don't nominate, elect themselves, but are placed in that position by others in the church, They were not to view their work as something that was forced upon them, right? There's a difference. In the midst of the job, the stress of shepherding combined with the danger their position put them and their families in due to persecution, talking about the original elders here that Peter was writing to, could make being an elder very difficult, even an unwanted burden. There's got to be elders, but now I'm, I'm a target right, for the people who are hurting Christians during this time. And so you can understand where in that context especially, Peter is encouraging these men, you need to guard your hearts and your attitudes. Don't do this because you're forced to do it. Do it with a willing heart, even though that means volunteering perhaps for your family to be physically harmed. And even for us, right, we're not in that position. Uh, I do not come into the church with the the fear that people are going to hurt me physically uh, in this, I wouldn't say in this day and age, in this day and place. The wrong attitude for a pastor uh, doesn't just result in personal difficulty for him. Like, oh, this is so hard. It's hard to wake up in the morning. I don't like my job. You know, personal difficulty but it can affect the entire church. You, you would see that in me, right? Even if I tried to hide it, I think it would only go so far before you would see that in me and you would say, you know, people say, like, I thought you, you liked your church. Why is it so difficult to go? It's like, it's, you know, we go and yeah, like the fellowship and stuff, but it's obvious that the pastor just doesn't want to be there. You know, they'll, they'll give us counsel and they'll help us, but you could tell that it's like someone's forcing the hand of these elders and they don't really want to do that. And you can see how that could affect you, uh, that could affect the church, but also on a kind of a personal sin level, uh, when, when you don't have diligence and passion in anything, that could easily give way to laziness. Uh, it can give way to indifference. Some of you have experienced that at your jobs where you're just like, I had to pay the bills. I got this job. I hate my job. And so you just do the bare minimum. You're not passionate about it. You're not, you don't do the extra research because you just love that field. You don't, do, you don't take on more clients because you just love helping people. It's just, you're just kind of lazy. You're indifferent about the purpose of that company. And it's the same thing on a spiritual level for a pastor or an elder who is not doing something, uh, he's not shepherding willingly. They're just under compulsion. They just kind of do it half-heartedly and just does the bare minimum. And that's dangerous. And then we come to this phrase in verse 2, according to the will of God. This is not a, a separate or second qualification or way, discipline that the elders are to shepherd, but it's actually grammatically connected to the word voluntarily or willingly. In other words, it defines the willingness of the elder in his shepherding. For an elder to feel obligated or forced to shepherd is not what God wants. 
for an elder to do this voluntarily and willingly is according to the will of God. And keep in mind, uh, we are talking about the work the elder does, right? Not the title. There are many people who uh, are doing the work of an elder and they're just very humble and they say, well, I don't want the title. I don't, wanna, I don't want people to know I'm an elder. That's a separate issue. What we're talking about is the willingness to do the work of their calling. Would you turn with me to Hebrews 13 and verse 17, and it addresses this issue. And it, it's uh, the verse that I was uh, paraphrasing uh, earlier. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. This is talking about within the context of church leadership. Verse 17 of Hebrews 13 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. That's where I got that idea earlier. But here's the point for this passage. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So for an elder to do this, again, unwillingly, it's unprofitable for the church. And I... I'm not saying this that we blame other people. Like, oh, here's a church. The elders are unhappy. They're doing this under compulsion because they have to because no one else will do it. So you blame the congregation. That's not what I'm saying, nor is it what the writer of Hebrews is saying. However, I think we are reminded that this is not an us versus them mentality. We are all placed in this church or whatever local church you belong to for a specific purpose, right? We are all the body of Christ, right? We have the eyes, we have the ears, we have the little toe, the big toe. Okay, I'm adding the scripture here, but you, you know the passage. You know what I'm talking about here. We all play, uh, play a part. God has placed you here because this church needs you to function in a certain way. And the willingness of the shepherd is connected to how the congregation lives out their faith and how they respond to biblical shepherding. Now, what I'm trying to say here is I think often, especially those who are kind of church hopping and looking for a church, and especially those who have left the church where they have been personally burned by that church or that pastor, it's easy to come to our church or any other church with the idea of, this church, this pastor needs to prove themselves to me. Like, not until they show me that they are worthy of my support and commitment and attendance will I fully submit and get involved. And to a certain degree, I get that. Like, I know people who have joined our church who have been not just, oh, that was a bad church, I got burned, but personally attacked in a sinful way by their former pastors. But here's the problem with this in general. No matter how badly you are treated or hurt at your last church, no matter how ill-treated you were, it does not change the fact that as a Christian, you are part of the body of Christ and need to fulfill your function. And the New Testament is very clear that that is primarily to be done through the local church. In other words, your past experiences do not erase the plan of God for every Christian to be serving and to be involved. We need to stop thinking of pastors and elders and shepherds like they're a bad boss. We are all in this together, and it serves nobody to live in a way that makes it difficult for the elders to find joy and willingness to lead. And I would even submit that if you go to a church where there is some sort of gap, right, whatever it is, you never interact with them, they're unapproachable, they never talk to you, they go to their office as soon as the, uh, the sermon is done and you can't find them, or even there's some sort of, sort of uh, um, kind of underlying message that you get that, that the elders are, are better than you, they're above you, they're, they're more spiritual than you in, in an unbiblical way, right, then I would say that that's a problem with their their understanding of elders and the church and their philosophy of ministry, right? 
and it, and it kind of leads and lends to this view that it's us versus them. There's the congregation, and then there's the elders and pastors who just tell us what to do and make decisions that we don't like. And so if it gets really bad, then we're just going to rebel against them. No, this is all the family of God. You, you wouldn't do that any more than, than the kids stage a rebellion against their parents. You would say there's something really wrong with the parenting there if that's what it is versus like, hey, mom, how come you did that over the dinner table, right? And that's kind of the idea of the family. Yes, there is an authority and a submission for, for elders and those under elders, but we are all a family of God. We are all doing this together. And so not only should elders be serving and shepherding willingly and voluntarily, he should be leading in a way, they should be leading in a way, that those who love God and understand the Bible are following and living out their faith with joy, voluntarily and willingly. Don't get me wrong here. The sin of the elder is the sin of the elder. If they have the wrong attitude in shepherding, that's on them. That's on me. But it does help to have a faithful and supportive flock. The second characteristic uh, of shepherding in verse 2, and in our outline we're still on the third point, right? The discipline, he just has many sub-points, is not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Quite simply, Peter is addressing the possibility and temptation of greed, monetary greed, financial gain. Now, sordid gain is shameful gain or shamefully greedy. So it goes beyond just a a pastor wanting to pay the bills. It goes way beyond that. It goes beyond even just a pastor saying, well, I'd like to be wealthy someday. But this is actually acquiring wealth or desiring to seek wealth in a shameful, sinful way. It's not wrong to pay a pastor for doing his job. That's uh, uh, pretty common uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in the developed world today. Uh, and that comes from the scriptures, right? Paul and Jesus are very clear about compensation for the role of a pastor. And the idea is very practical. Is if you want someone to be preaching and teaching and shepherding, you want to make sure that they're not spending all their time at another job Because whether it's 40 hours a week or part-time 18 hours a week, that's 40 or 18 hours a week away from shepherding God's people, away from uh, studying the Word of God and things like that. In fact, I'd like to turn to 1 Corinthians 9. Have you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 4 through 14? 1 Corinthians 9, verses 4 through 14. And if you... As we read through this passage, if you kind of get this almost like a sense of a harsh tone, maybe even a little of a sarcastic tone, um, some of you know that the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians was a little rocky. Right? They, he treated them with love and grace, and they abused that over and over again. And so he's very firm with them. 1 Corinthians 9 verses 4 through 14, and he's talking about apostles, he's talking about elders, he's talking about people who are vocationally in ministry. He says, do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake, human sake, it was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we do not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. 
Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? And those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. And then later Paul tells Timothy, you don't need to turn there, but in Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, he says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, same quote of the Old Testament, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, this is not true of all churches, but I'm so thankful that for the most part, Bible-believing and Bible-teaching churches in America no longer adhere uh, to the uh, decades-old view that you purposely, even if you don't have to, you purposely underpay a pastor so that he can barely survive and barely pay the bills. His kids can't have the same toys that your kids have because, well, we don't want him to be proud and greedy and, and, and love money. These verses clearly say the opposite. I'm thankful for our church uh, that the package, the salary package they've offered me is actually more than I'm willing to take. And so, but there are many people. I have had pastor's wives, good friends, men who I have, a man who I've discipled who is now an elder and a pastor in his church um, that many, many of you met recently in Monterey and his wife sitting there. I, every time they would visit, I'd say, is the church paying you guys more? And she would start crying because they were dipping into savings and their parents had to buy them cars and things like that because the church was purposely not paying them. Um, and, and I don't want to be too specific, but it was very common in his type of church that was a church of a specific ethnicity that just known to be frugal and saving money, but to the point that we're not for the fact that he was a businessman before going to seminary and that he has parents with uh, extra income, their kids wouldn't be eating the way they should be eating. And so it is dangerous, however, for an elder who is paid to start saying, well, there's this much offering, Maybe I should get a little, paid a little more. And naturally, the elders will probably say, you know, yeah, that's a little extreme to double your salary overnight or whatever extreme thing. And so he says, well, you know what? I have access to the church bank accounts. Right? I have access to which missionaries we support. And my son happens to be a missionary. And they're shepherding and they can easily manipulate people with, the, with, with a, a mis, misuse of the Scriptures. And all of a sudden, even though they may not be successful, that is a fondness of sordid gain. You see this on television. Well, hopefully you don't actually see this, but you know they're on TV, right? It's like they would tell you, well, that's just, that's just what these people who watch my TV show and, and have been have been healed by my prayers or whatever, they just send in the money. I'm not fond of sordid gain. They just, they want me to have a, a brand new private jet because my current one is four years old and totally outdated, right? The leather is cracking. This is true. Some of these prosperity gospel preachers have multiple private jets and they have been on record saying, we can't fly commercial with those heathen. And you're like, uh, who are you? ministering to then how are you evangelizing right if you seclude yourself in a in a private tube in the air that no one else has access to and this is you say well they're not fond of sort of game they just send the money really you didn't hire 20 people at a call center to take their calls and their checks and their credit cards you didn't tell them and abuse the scriptures saying that god wants you to be healthy and happy and rich you didn't stand up there and show them your new private jet and say, you can have this too. God wants you to have this. If you have the faith and you send the checks, that's fond of sordid gain. That's fleecing the flock. That's a wrong heart attitude. These men will be condemned. And what Peter is addressing again is the hard attitude which will lead the elder to seek this honest gain. I know people who have done this. Not millions and millions, but a little bit of money embezzling church funds, 
right? And again, you, you could see this, how the manipulation and, and the, the authority they have over these people, they abuse it so they can line their pockets. This is not addressing a church that underpays, right? That's their thing to deal with, right? If they're not paying a, a livable wage for their area to their pastors, that church is in sin. That's their issue. What we're talking about is the heart of the elder who seeks dishonest gain, who seeks to, be, uh, to have the kind of lifestyle and possessions that he knew he would not have if he were to be a pastor. And, of course, we're talking about elders too. And so we're also talking about men in the church who are not paid by the church. We call them lay elders. They're not vocational elders. They just do this uh, in the church. That's their role. That's their service in the church. And they too can easily manipulate people or access the church funds and basically steal. And you need to note that what Peter is addressing is the motivation for shepherding. So, Even before there is any immoral siphoning of funds, the elder must approach his role having the right heart attitude. And the right heart attitude is, as Peter writes, a God-focused eagerness to shepherd, even if there's no pastor's appreciation cards, even if there's no recognition, even if there's no thank you, even if there's no pay. Well, let's move on to verse 3 because we're running out of time. We have our third aspect of the discipline or mindset of the elder. He says in 1 Peter 5.3, Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. So elders are not to lord their authority over or, as the ESV says, domineer over other people. Both are good translations of the Greek word, lorded over, domineer over. The idea is an intense domination and control over other people. And this would involve any sort of oppression or intimidation. This can take many forms, threatening people. If you don't do this, I'm going to tell the congregation or whatever it may be, right? Whatever uh, sinful, wicked types of things they may do. And I, I've heard of the whole gamut. We, my wife and I have personal relationships with people who have done horrible things, right? Uh, Pastors in the, in, the, in, the, in the church bathroom doing homosexual acts with their intern and then threatening uh, to, to reveal them if they say anything and then firing them from the church. Right? This happens. Solid, Bible-believing, John MacArthur-reading church. Okay? Uh, I've seen people abuse uh, their authority uh, to the point uh, that the pastor's fellow elders, now that the pastor's disqualified and other churches had to step in, the elder said, oh, he, I was just scared to say no to him, right? There's some sort of manipulation and lording it over uh, in that case, and it's very easy to do. And elders, pastors need to be very careful. In Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28, Jesus warns his followers about this, comparing them to the Gentiles, the unbelievers. I'll read that for you, verses 25 through 28 in Matthew 20. Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Same word we have in 1 Peter 5. And their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the idea that you've heard of, of not just leadership, but servant leadership. We lead through service. And Peter alludes to this in 1 Peter 5 as well. And first, in 1 Peter 5, he reminds elders that those who are under them are allotted to your charge. In other words, yes, you are over them, you have charge over them, but they are allotted to you. And we said this last week, they are not your people. They are God's people that have been given to these elders to care for. Christ gives us the flock to lead. And that means that elders are to tell others how to live. 
It is my responsibility to tell you through the Word of God how to live. From here on a Sunday morning, but also when I see you one-on-one and say, no, 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 you can't be doing that. You need to honor God through this. You need to repent of that. You need to give that back. You need to break that relationship. you got to do whatever it may be. But again, the heart attitude is important. It's not about prestige and power, but serving, ministering to people with the Word of God. And the antidote to this is at the end of verse 3 is to be an example to the flock. This follows the metaphor of the shepherd, right? Actual shepherd with, with physical sheep, the animal. The ancient shepherd did not drive his sheep. You know what that means to drive a group of animals? He didn't stand in the middle of the flock or behind and go, ha, 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 go. But when you see the ancient shepherd, he's always standing in front and the sheep follow him. And we learn this pattern not just from the actual shepherds, but from the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, who often presented himself in the Gospels as the example to lead. Matthew 10, the disciples not above his teacher nor slave above his master, but they will become like the teacher and the master. That's verses 24 and 25 of Matthew 10. In John 13, 15, Jesus says, I give you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Paul says this. He writes, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. That's Philippians 3.17. He says the same thing uh, to other churches, Paul does. I especially like a, a, a verse that's probably familiar to some of you. 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. And that's what the under-shepherd, the pastor, the elder does. It says, follow my example, but only to the degree and because of my following and the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that, that's passed on. It's not just the apostles and Jesus Christ. He instructs Timothy and Titus, be examples to your churches. And we see from these verses that the example... That the elders, and I want to clarify this, right? Be an example, pastor. The example that the elder or pastor is to set for his congregation is not how to be an elder or a pastor. It is how to be a Christian. It's how to be a Christian. How to live out your faith. How all of us are to live. And when it comes to the practical outworking of our faith, I say this because there's always a fear in my mind, because I've experienced it, that I preach a specific thing. Like, obviously, this passage is for for elders. But, you know, I I preach something about the role of a wife, or I preach something about uh, children, you know, honor your parents. And you think, well... Of course, he's a pastor. Of course he does that. He has to. He's a pastor. Right? But the Word of God is for all of us. And so, you know, growing up as a kid, you do this, right? It's like, you know, if this is the standard we're called to, well, we're going to be a little lower. Right? Because if, if, if they're saying, yeah, uh, you know, perfection is a 10, it's like I can get away with a 9. And I think a lot of times Christians think that way. It's like, well, yeah, of course the pastor's going to preach a 10. And of course he's going he's to live out a 10. But I'm not a pastor. I'm not an elder. So I can be a 9, an 8, and once in a while a 3 or a 2. Right? And there's a temptation to do that. Right? I, I even did that before I was a pastor. It's like, well, yeah, of course he's going to say that. Right? And we need to be careful because this example that elders are to set Obviously, there's unique things that only elders are to do, like preaching. But there's, you know, well, even that. You can preach, you know, to your friends and family, the gospel. But don't look at how I live and it's like, well, he's at church every Sunday because, well, he's a pastor. He has to. No, the example that I am supposed to set is how we all are to live as Christians. Because if it's in the Scriptures, it's for all of us. Last Wednesday... I was driving home from visiting one of our uh, members of our congregation who was in the hospital. And I was driving home. It was just a couple-mile drive. 
it occurred to me that by God's grace, I cannot recall a time where I have done something like that, visited someone in the hospital or brought a meal or something, and thought, I'm doing this because I have to because I'm a pastor. Or, or felt like I needed to do that because that's, uh, this person gives an offering, that offering goes to my salary, and I'm paid to do this. I can't remember a time that I've done this. I do these things because I'm a Christian. I don't do that because I'm a pastor. got to go visit people. No, I do it because I'm a Christian. Now, I understand. Uh, I can't fully grasp it, but I understand on an intellectual level that sometimes it's nicer uh, for you to be visited in the hospital by your pastor than just anyone. I get that. Uh, But again, by God's grace, I do these things because I'm a Christian, because I love you guys, just as I hope you love each other. If anything, being a pastor just gives me an excuse to do the things that I want to do anyways because I'm a Christian. I never think, well, I'm a pastor. I'm obligated to do it. Well, there was one time recently. It was when the deacons made me stand up here while you guys all uh, listened to Chris Exposit First Thessalonians. And, you know, I had to do that. because, But you, you get what I'm saying, right? And I know we're talking about elders. And the Bible is clear that women cannot be church elders or pastors, and my wife is neither. But it seems strange to talk about myself, so I'm going to talk about her. My wife is an example to me, and I believe to all of you. She's here every Sunday. She's wrangling the kids in who, trust me, don't just get dressed on time and sit there waiting for us. Let's go to church, okay? They fight us, right? Just 30 minutes ago, one of them was still in his pajamas. And I think it's easy to forget, for those of you who've been around, that almost on a daily basis, she is in excruciating pain to the point that she can barely walk, and she is still just at the beginning of a very high-risk pregnancy. But she's here every Sunday, not because she's a pastor's wife, but because she's a Christian. And as a Christian, she knows that physical pain is not an excuse to disobey God by not coming to church. I never say, I never say, come on, lady, muscle through the pain, you Christian, your pastor's wife, get to church. She's just there. She's getting ready. I never say anything, right? I'm getting ready myself, or I'm still sleeping, or I'm in my office. She's here because she loves to worship, and she loves being with God's people, and she never does it because I am pastor's wife. I've got to be there. And in that, I think she's a great example to men and women who jump at any excuse to not go to the church. Oh, the kids don't want to go to church. Oh, I'm, I, my arm hurts. I don't feel good. Since this pregnancy started, since week 11, she has never felt good. And she won't, again, until about four weeks after her C-section. But she'll be here. You see, being an example is not going above and beyond. It is doing what all Christians should be doing. There are days when Jenny doesn't want to come to church. She's tired. She's in pain. The kids aren't obeying. At home, there are days that she wants to just hand me the kids and say, I need me time. But she doesn't. She wants to fulfill her privileged duty of being a mom and a wife. I think people forget she has a college degree that she's not using vocationally. She had professional aspirations that she gave up to be a wife and a mom and a missionary. She has thoughts and desires and passions that she puts aside because she needs to submit to her husband. She doesn't just do it because it's easy. She has weddings of dear, dear loved ones back in Ohio on the other side of the country that she chooses to miss because she doesn't want to be away from her family and from her church. She gets invited to do fun activities on Sunday mornings, play dates with other parents and kids from our, the school that our kids go to, but she doesn't go because she prioritizes you guys. And the point is, she does these things. She's given up all of those things, not because she happened to marry a pastor, but because she believes the Bible and wants to submit to it as a woman of God. And here's my point. The example that Peter is talking about is not radical Christianity. I love my wife for it. I support her. I know the sacrifices she's making. But coming to church in that kind of pain is not radical Christianity. It's Christianity. 
having a bachelor's, a master's, and a PhD in your field and saying, I have kids now, I'm married now, I'm going to stay at home and take care of my family. That's not radical Christianity, that's biblical Christianity. That's obedience. And this is for all of us. To love one another in a self-sacrificial way. To fulfill our biblical roles no matter how hard it is, no matter how much society and even your own parents have told you and ingrained in you otherwise. To fulfill our biblical roles in the family and society to prioritize the gathering of the saints. I really hope, and I understand if you do, but I really hope you never think that I do these things because I have to, because I'm a pastor. There are many times I do these things because I have to, because I've been purchased by the blood of Christ. It's not because I have to, because I'm a pastor. And in all of the shepherding, all of the example, all of the right heart attitude, Peter doesn't expect leaders to sacrifice in all of these ways without an understanding that God will give a reward for it. And this brings us to our fourth and final quality of a biblical elder, the destiny. Destiny. And I know I've gone long. I'll do this quickly. Verse 4, And when the chief shepherd, that is Jesus Christ, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The appearing of the chief, chief shepherd is the second coming of Jesus Christ. The picture of the crown would be familiar to the original readers because of the victor's wreath. Perhaps you've seen depicted in your history books or on TV, right? Someone won the Olympic Games. They put this crown of of leaves or uh, more accurately branches. But these wreaths that were made of natural materials from a tree would eventually die and rot. They're only symbolic. The crown of glory for the faithful elder is unfading. This is pure glory. This is not tainted with sin or pride or vanity on the elder's part as it is awarded when all of those things are done away with and he is in glory. And again, we are reminded that the faithfulness that is being rewarded is the careful discharging of the duties commanded of elders as they serve as under-shepherds of Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd, the master shepherd, and he is the one who gives the reward. He's the only one who has the ability to do so. When I was in seminary, I befriended a godly man who followed in his father's footsteps of being a very successful businessman. Uh, in fact, right, right now, he's just the right-hand man of one of the most uh, uh, successful Christian businessmen uh, in the world, and flies around with him in his private jet, and where they're going on their private jet is basically buying old Walmart buildings and Target buildings and buying them for cheap so that they can sell them or give them away to churches to have places to meet. Um, I don't want to give away too much, but think Hobby Lobby. And this man knows his Bible. He's very successful. He knows what he's doing. And his understanding of the Scriptures uh, was so, uh, so good, so adept, is that the right use of that word? And we'd be in small group together. We were at the same church at the same time. And I would always challenge him. I'm like, you ever consider going to seminary? You ever consider being a pastor? Because you love people. You're a leader in our church. You're, you know. And he actually came from a long legacy of Bible school professors and administrators, his, his parents and his grandparents. And so I would encourage him to go to seminary. And this is a guy who would go, you know, go on a business trip to London. And he's like, I got like six hours to go see all the sites. And he said, I was just, I was just moved and prompted. And so I forsake, forsook the free time. And he went to the famous, uh, infamous speaker's corner in London in that park where people, it's famous for people to just give their opinions and protests and stuff. And he said, you know what? I really wanted to see, you know, the Tower of London and Big Ben. But instead I went to speaker's corner and I preached the gospel for two hours. This is the kind of man he was. He is. But I couldn't quite convince him to be a pastor, and that's, that's fine. You know, you're either called or you're not. And I remember him. He had various reasons for not becoming a pastor. And I remember one night we were talking, and he asked me, he's like, why would you do that? Like, wh- what made you want to go to seminary? Why would you be a pastor? 
knowing that you'd be making sacrifices, knowing that you wouldn't make a lot of money, knowing that you'll most likely under, undergo all sorts of physical and, and emotional trials. And I forgot exactly what I said or where guy, he kind of interrupted me before I could say anything, and he, he kind of joked, and he said, it's probably because the retirement package is incredible. And what he was talking about was not an actual physical retirement package, but the unfading crown of glory, the extra reward that elders and pastors will receive from the Lord. Well, four qualities or tests of a biblical elder. We've seen the description. We've seen the duty. We've seen the discipline. We've seen the destiny. May this be your standard for what your elders and your pastors be. And may this be something that uh, we all strive to in godliness, and perhaps some of you believe you are called to ministry, uh, whether it's to go to seminary and be a pastor or be an elder in this church or another. May you reflect on this passage and pray that the Lord would grant you this heart attitude. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to be chosen, to be gifted by your grace. A man who's just a a, a sinful, proud, angry, uneloquent individual, and yet you have given me the privilege of doing what you've called me to do. I pray that you would help me to have this heart attitude, that I would always find joy to serve you and to serve your people willingly, that you would guard me against the desire for uh, sinful financial gain or, or greed, that I would be an example to the flock of not what an elder is to be, but what a Christian is to be. Father, I pray for the confidence and the relationship with those in this flock who are willing, that they would be willing to pray for me, to challenge me, to admonish me, to encourage me, to confront me when this is not the case. May you give them a biblical understanding and a conviction to lovingly and graciously but firmly hold this standard of me and any other elders that you might provide to this church. We do pray, Father, that you would raise up, bring up godly men, spiritually qualified men to be elders at this church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.